You're listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. This episode features audio from a discussion panel that was recorded at DragonCon 2018. So, uh, some housekeeping things. We have a charity, Dragon has a charity, and we would love for you to give your offerings and donations. That's right, we might pass the plate on today. So. But it's up here, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a noble thing, especially for those of us who are deeply steeped in literature, as well as in all things geeky media, because it's for literacy. So it's a worthwhile possible. So um, this is religion and high fantasy. We thought about politics and presidential administration and high fantasy. We thought about taxes and high fantasy. But we went with religion because it was a lot calmer. What happened to sex? And <laughs> sex and, I assure you, there's plenty of That's for after hours. So. Um, I'm going to introduce our, or let our panelists introduce themselves here in a second, but I want to help them by taking a quick poll. Um, and I'm, in my real world life, a consultant, which means I love two by two matrices. <laughs> it's easy to split people into. So, so here's my question. I want you to think about two questions. One is your degree of religious inclination, your individual kind of personal engagement. Um, and we're not trying to pin it down to a particular faith or creed, but just your zeal for it. Because so some of you may be at the skeptical, at best, end of that scale. You may even be further left on that scale, or all the way to a strongly devout person in whatever expression of faith you have. So I'm assuming that there's a span in the room for that. The second question I've got is. Some of you have, may have different degrees of appetite for religion in your fiction, including in your fantasy. So I will assume that that's on a scale of avoidance. I don't like that when you do it to me. All the way up to, amen, brother and sister, well, let's give me some more of that, whatever that is in your version. So are you with me on that? Mm-hmm. Now, because Tara Lynn is on our panel, I chose some Game of Thrones icons because she's a Game of Thrones and, uh, and so if, if you are at the high end of both scales, I'm going to call you a Melisandre. <laughs> do we have any Melisandres in the room? If you would identify yourself. Okay, good. Now, at the other extreme, um, we're going to call you the Sandor Clegane. Okay? Um, and uh, do we have any of those skeptical and intent to avoid, although Tara may tell us, there is some transition in you know, the d- development you want to see with Sam. So it may be unfair to label them as such. Any sand or kind of at the low end of the choir for each? Well, you're welcome. Um, on the, um, let's see, where do I go next? Oh, we're, we're going to call the ones that are devout but don't like it in their fiction, I'm going to call you high sparrows. We, we love religion, but we like it our way. And, we like it. and uh, we're just going to have it that way. Any high sparrows in the room? Not too many. You can confess. There's no shame. All right, and then uh, in the top quadrant, we'll have the Tyrion Lannisters. Uh, you know, I'm skeptical, but hey, this Daenerys is looking more compelling every day. So, so any Tyrions in the room? 
So did you see, did you watch how there were hands in every quadrant? You may be just in the muddled middle. I don't think I have a muddled middle. So, and I'll talk about this when we get to our ground rules. But, but first, it's just to recognize there are a lot of points of view. And religion can be a, a flashpoint topic for a lot of people. So we're going to try to be friendly with it. Okay? So uh, here's our panelists. Kirsten Cairns, I called her a Tolkien, Tolkienian diva. Do you want to say anything about yourself? Um, yes, actually, yes. In, in, the, in the context of why you chose to be on a religion and high fantasy thing. Oh, wow, in that context. Uh, I, I like the talking diva, definitely a diva. Um, uh, as my little name tag here tells you, I am a staffer at theonering.net, which you may already know that. Um, my name at the One Ring is Green Dragon. I'm also shamelessly promoting the t-shirts we have at the OneRing.net's booth. Ooh, ah. We hope you'll come by and visit us in the Hyatt at our booth. Um, where am I? I would say I'm fascinated by religion in literature because in my personal life, I'm a deeply spiritual person but I really am not sure quite what I believe. So I'm always fascinated by what other people believe, the kind of um, anthropological side of things and the sociological side of things. What makes you tick? Why do you believe that? Tell me about your faith. And so when I encounter it in literature, I have the same reaction. I want to know more. Why, where are you coming from with that belief? Good. We'll hear more from Kirsten. It's unavoidable. <laughs> Tim Powers is an author, and he's an author that integrates religion into your works. And I'm what? So you, 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 you put religion things into your works. Well, so, well yeah. It's yeah so you one of the colors on one's palette. Yeah. Talking to the microphone. Well, yeah, since I write fantasy, which obviously involves the supernatural, uh, it would seem an arbitrary restriction to say, but no religion. Um, and personally, I'm uh, practicing a very orthodox Roman Catholic. Uh, not, not, not a recovering or lapsed one. Okay. Um, Tara Lynn on the end is, uh, again, as I said, our, our resident uh, Game of Thrones expert, possibly, I said, a Westerosi child of the forest. I haven't seen that cosplay yet, but yeah. Yeah. not yet. So, Tara. Um, so yeah, my, my name is Tara. Um, I can be found across the web at A Geek Saga. I uh, run Ice and Fire Con, which is the first ever Game of Thrones song of Ice and Fire convention in the U.S. And um, I, I wanted to be on this panel because, to be honest, I was uh, raised in a very religious home, and I, I actually studied it a lot. Um, I mean, I read the Bible like three times before I even graduated high school, like cover to cover. Um, and then I <clears throat> got out of uh, the house and went to college and uh, became an entirely different person in terms of how I look at religion and whatnot. And I think that having that background and then also having that sort of own, my own like personal growth and, and kind of big leap away from any sort of faith like that, uh, I really it makes me really enjoy kind of looking into how authors, you know, put their own beliefs or uh, even even disbeliefs into their works. Okay. 
Next is Constance Wagner. I call her a numinous professor. She thinks about the sacramental a lot and is a professor at St. Peter's University. Yes, sir. Is that Jesuit? Yes, Jesuit University. It's Jesuit University of New Jersey. That's our country mm. thing. Um, yeah, and I, I wanted to be on this panel. I thought it would be interesting to talk about the concept of grace, among other things, which is uh, part of the Jesuit tradition. And there's some other things I want to bring up, but I'm not going to do that part just now. But if you're asking for please, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I'm also open to lots of other things. <laughs> so I'm uh, an eclectic Catholic. <laughs> and a believer, so okay. And I'm Jim Wirt, your simple moderator. I will confess to being a rather orthodox Presbyterian, which is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> if you're a Presbyterian, you know that I had no choice of being on this panel. In a nutshell. I want to talk about some quick round rules for us um, as a summary of it. Uh, so, as I said earlier when we did a little poll, just respect the diversity in the room. Uh, we, I, we're hoping for um, a, a, an interactive panel. We'll hopefully have a lot of discussion up here, but we have some traveling microphones around the room. It's a big, it's a crowded room, which is great, uh, but it may be a little tough for us to get to a microphone, but if you wait for it, or if you've got a big booming voice, but, but as you do that, please respect the fact that there are people with diverse opinions, and, and we only have 45 minutes, then, 40, 50 minutes, we're not going to solve them all. <laughs> so just be, be friendly. Um, debate ideas, not so much individuals. So in other words, and I hope we'll get to big ideas, uh, but no, what an idiotic thing for you to say. Jim. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so debate ideas, not individuals. And, and, and keep it friendly. Just keep it friendly. Focus on high fantasy content, not conversions. We're not here to, to convert you to our particular way of thinking about things. And you, as you can see, even on our panel, we have a broad cross-section. We had an Inklings panel yesterday, and they had a broad cross-section. And they figured it out, so hopefully we can do that. <laughs> or more simply, and the big, if you, anybody, any volunteers on the staff, uh, Dragon Con volunteers in the room, on other staffs? You know what our big Dragon Con rule is? One thing, don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. So in other words, and I don't know if the one who has this, so it's more like this, coexist. Yes. It's our Tolkienian version of it, not this. Because that's true, I mean, And um, as luck would have it, we do still have some of those coexist t-shirts for sale at the OneRing.net booth. So if you would like a coexist shirt, come on by and see us there. Did I mention that already? I also just wanted to mention that I'm in a cab on the way to the con the other day when I told the driver where I was going and why. He said, oh, that's that thing where all the people gather together and worship the devil. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to give you some really quick context so that we just lay a little bit of groundwork here and then we're going to release analysts to various things. But, but just some context. Um, and we pr probably can't read this. I'm going to read this out to you. Um, just like Tim said, if, if you're going to write in a fantasy world, it would be a, it would be an unnatural constraint to to remove the religious element from it. And so, in, in one argument is our desire to answer the big questions, whatever your big questions are, what about death? Where are we going? Where did this all come from? Why am I here? Now, those are nearly universal kinds of questions. So it makes sense for fiction generally, and fantasy in particular, 
to try to answer those kinds of questions. So, faith, myth, God, gods, worship, etc., have been part of that quest for meaning and for answers for millennia. Some see that quest as delusion or distraction, and, th and that may be some of our uh, Sander, Claudine, and um, corner of the room, which, okay. Some see that as, you know, even, um, even asking the question as itself evidence of a reality beyond that which we merely experience. So there are an array of points of view. Our focus in this panel is primarily how do these urges and questions and treatments and artistic um, expression show up in uh, the themes that, that are explored particularly in fantasy. And our focus is not going to be trying to settle all those big questions, unless our panelists have a breakthrough. <laughs> um, the, the last thing I'll say is um, we, we also understand a, a lot of the fantasy that we're consuming at Dragon Con is mostly Western fantasy. It's not exclusively so, and there are other tracks that, that look at, um, I think there's a, is there still a Silk Road track? Yes. So it's looking at Asian components, and obviously there are a lot of Asian religious and myth kinds of um, treatments uh, that, that, but we're mostly looking at the Western culture and worldview, and that means a lot of what we are dealing with is connected to Christianity. Um, and you know, if you were here at the last panel, or are the Beowulf concentrated panels, you heard some of that come out as well. Um, it's, it's the backdrop. We're not trying to be intentionally um, jingoistic or narrow, it's just where we are going primarily with this panel. So just want to set that expectation. Um, there are lots of paths into religion in high fantasy. Um, so I'm going to give you just four broad examples. We may get into some others. Sometimes religion is overt, almost to the point of being allegorical. Um, obviously, the Narnia Chronicles in C.S. Lewis is an example of that. Um, if you are a Madeline Lengel fan, she is a devoutly Christian person, and those kinds of things will appear, not quite as um, overtly, perhaps, as in Narnia. So that's that's one kind of an approach. It, it's, it's right there on the surface, and you can see it. And there's a particular point of view um, that's being expressed. Um, in other cases, um, it's deeply embedded into the fabric of the story. And so if you've been to any of our Beowulf panels, you've heard of it. <coughs> on how uh, the author of Beowulf was most likely a Christian, and Christians talk about that. Uh, but that's also clearly the case with Tolkien and, uh, and all of his legendary, and our, our Roman Catholics may end up helping us with that. In contrast to that, there are, there are also clear examples that are counter-religious. And so, um, and that a classic example would be Philip Pullman, so much so that I even put a quote on the bottom of that page that says, I'm a religious person, although I am not a believer. Which is an interesting thing for a Philip Pullman to say. You know, he's, he is integrating points of view about religion into his works, but from his perspective, which in, um, in some interpretations is running as a counter um, literature to what Lewis was doing in Narnia. And so so it, you may love the Golden Compass, you may not. But that was clearly what he was doing. If you're an Ursula Le Guin um, fan, uh, and I actually read an article in preparation in a Christian periodical that was um, talking about the value of Ursula Le Guin's approach to thinking about themes like death and what happens afterward. 
although she would have described herself as a non-religious person. So, um, and then Tara can help us because if you know, maybe it's just ambiguous. There's a smorgasbord to choose from that has presented itself in various ways, and it's either um, uncertain or interesting or good fiction or it's about power. But whatever it is, it's, it may just be confusing to us. So. Um, there, there are those kinds of books and fantasies that, that we know about. Um, so here, I'm gonna, I, actually, I'm going to put all of four of my themes up here. I got four panels. I kind of uh, divvied them up with them. But honestly, I think it's going to end up just mixing all up. So uh, we may have them kick off, and I'll try to watch the clock and maybe hit some, some spots. But um, here are some discussion things. Why the connection? How and why is fantasy an effective genre? An effective genre, just not an inevitable, an effective genre for religious themes. And we'll ask Tim to kind of kick us off there. Um, second, what are the main and best religious themes that fantasy tends to tackle? Um, and uh, Kirsten may help us get that conversation started. Who does it well? Who does it not so well? Who's horrible at it, if you want to go there? And, and what are the reasons? What do you look for when religion is dealt with appropriately or not so much? And then what are some common uh, or best approaches or even tropes for integrating fantasy into, uh, or religion into your fantasy? And as a writer, Constance may help us with that. So those questions make sense, Pamela's to mm. We've kind of distributed them out. So I'm, actually, Tim, why don't we start and, and just, you, you help us get going and then we'll go wherever. But why the connection? What, what is it about um, fantasy that uh, makes it a, a vehicle for religious thought and, and exploration? Oh, well, as I uh, said earlier, um, <clears throat> fantasy by definition deals with the supernatural. You've got ghosts, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and ultimately, I think it uh, really is rooted in uh, mythology, um, be largely because the old mythology stories have proven to be so enduring and universal, even among cultures that can't have had contact with one another, uh, that you do start to believe the Jungian idea that these figures and situations are wired into the very basements of, of, our, of every human uh, mind. Um, and, uh, and, of course, they show up, as I say, in mythology. They, uh, they show up in all sorts of places. And so, given that you're writing about magic, supernatural, um, I think it, for one thing, people are going to be worshipping stuff. Uh, even if you have, uh, I don't know, some sort of uh, fringy offshoot crowd. We've seen it in a lot of fantasy stories where that tribe worships uh, Dingo the Frog God. Um, in, in the Fritz Leiber, Fawford and the Grey Mouser stories, there's lots of little, remember there's the street of the gods. Every building is a different god. Um, I think it does lead you, just as in physics, the evidences all, if you trace them down, lead you ultimately to the idea of the Big Bang. I think if you admit the possibility of the supernatural in all its various manifestations, it will lead you back to an equivalent Big Bang, uh, that, that such a thing is implied. 
Um, now, certainly in fiction, it needn't and arguably oughtn't to be overt. As I said, I'm, I'm practicing Catholic, but the supernatural in my books is, I, I don't know, ancient Greek gods, ghosts, vampires. Uh, I certainly I would never in my books attempt to uh, proselytize. Um, some people can do that effectively. You think of, well, C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, uh, in a broader sphere, uh, George Orwell. Um, but I find as a reader myself, if I see the writer trying to advance a position on me under the guise of fiction, my credulity snaps. Um, make it implicit as mo at most. I, anyway, ultimately, yeah, I do think the facts of supernatural in fiction implies that you could uh, refine it down to an ultimate Big Bang, which, which would be God. Okay. Let's look down to the panelists first. Just one of the things I think is interesting about kind of why literature would deal with religion or how effectively it deals with it, it seems to me as kind of picking up on something that Tim was saying, it's inevitable that we as human beings would express and seek to express ourselves in that way. There's kind of two sides to that coin. On the one hand, part of the human condition is that we're always trying to understand our place in the world. We've always tried to say, why does the sun appear to come up in the morning? Why does it appear to go down at night? Why does it cross the sky? What's going on there? We try to explain it, and as science it develops and grows, then we have scientific explanations, but we're always trying to make sense of the things around us, and then say, well, what does it mean that we're going to die? So, as humans, we're always trying to make sense of those things, and art uh, is a way that we express our endeavors to make sense of those things, and religion is another way that we try to make sense of those things. So on the one side of the coin, you've got this inevitability that, that our, um, our art would also express our religion, because they're both kind of serving the same purpose of saying, what are we doing here, what's our place in the world? The other side of that coin is the Tolkien and Lewis side, that the reason we are creative and questioning and thinking and wondering is because God created us that way. That our own imagination is evidence of the divine creator, that we are able to be sub-creators, that we have these imaginative powers. I mean, I'm very much shorthanding that, but that would be the sort of Tolkien-Lewis argument. So, it's absolutely inevitable that both we, our nature as humans, means we want to seek out religion and we use art as a way of doing that, or perhaps because there is a God, that is our nature as humans, and therefore that means that religion exists. Okay, I can actually answer that. Distinction. My basic philosophy is, and it ties in with what Kirsten just said, that art is the song of the soul. That is how um, we express ourselves to each other. It doesn't matter um, what nationality, etc. Uh, we do it through storytelling, through music, etc. And for many people, the artistic expression becomes a religious experience. For the creator of the art and the receivers of the art, the audience, you find an intensity of emotion uh, 
and attraction to the ideals that are phrased in a way that, because we're also wired to want story, um, this is why people do Bible study. I mean, they read the Bible and anything else, any kind of religious. Um, it, just when you're offered an example, parables and whatnot, storytelling helps tune in to what you need. But our art itself is, it really is a religious experience for those creating it, those receiving it, and it helps us understand more of our own spirituality, I think. Constance has been working on her book for the last 27 years <laughs> and has never once used the Lord's name in vain in that religious experience. Well, I mean, just, just the point that um, I think whether you're doing it consciously or, or you know, subconsciously, unconsciously, your your beliefs are always going to make, you know, your deepest beliefs are always going to show at some point in your work. Well, true. So... Um, we'll, we'll maybe take a question or two on this one, and then we're going to move on to the second question. Uh, see this Talk really loud. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if you're developing a religion from scratch that's not centered to the plot of the story, but uh, integral to the character's personalities, behavior, and, and faith she uh, expresses, uh, to avoid the world builder's demise, uh, how far into the dogma should you plan out uh, and conceive uh, the... Yeah. Uh, Can I hold that question? Sure. I mean, we're going to get there, but that's going to go to the how do you do it. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the how do you do it part, I'm answer that. Sure. <laughs> that question. Let's go with, uh, what I find interesting is the compare and contrast George Martin is very deep, all these different religious sects, with um, Tolkien, and even though he was deeply Catholic, there's no religious groups within the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. Can you like talk, compare, contrast that? Yeah, yeah and so you could go, for example, Tara Guy's been through this. And she said um, that your your beliefs are going to come out somehow. Martin would describe himself as I don't know a, 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 a lapsed Catholic. Yeah. Uh, recovering, he's kind of a little ambiguous. I like to think it's, I like to think it's like a virus. You might be in remission for decades, but one morning you wake up and it's all over you again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a school disease. Martin went to a high school that was very near where I work, and it was um, Catholic Maris Brothers High School, and he came out of absolutely hating everything about religion. Yeah. So, so then a question for Kara maybe to start. What's he trying to say? I mean, I don't know if if with his religion specifically, he's trying to make some sort of um, deeper statement than what is kind of, it's kind of like there, it jumps out at you, like from the page that... uh, the, the the true religion in his, in his world, I think, is nature, um, you know, but but he has, obviously, he writes, you know, the faith uh, of the seven, which was inspired by the structure of the medieval Catholic Church, and he's got, um, you know, the old gods, which are kind of like Celtic animism inspired, and then uh, the ruler, who is, rulerism is, it's like this mystery cult that is based on, um, like some say the uh, Cathars or Albigensians. There's a couple other ones that um, I've never heard of that somebody else mentioned, but um, I think I think generally it's it's the Cathars or Albigensians. But it also has, I also always think that rulerism has some kind of similarities to those 
fun, like corner protesters. We see at all these conventions because uh, they literally do that in his world. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. I think he's 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 putting these religions out there for us just to kind of show. Uh, like at the cruelty of blind faith, regardless of, of which one, you know, somebody's following. Okay, yeah, so sometimes religion is in there to have a commentary on the nature of religion itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Almost inevitably. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a good segue here to the second kind of broad set of themes, which are core religious themes. Pay no attention. <laughs> so some core religious themes, and I'll just toss out a lot, and then you can go wherever you want. Kirsten's going to go around this. So origins and creation, you know, sun up and sundown kinds of things. The struggle between and the definition of good and evil. Um, death and what happens after. Free will versus fate. Uh, those are terms Redemption, yes. sacrifice, salvation. Yeah, you're done. Virtue and heroism, temptation and moral ambiguity, just the nature of hope, so those kinds of things. And you guys, but, oh. <laughs> okay, so it's like, but you don't have to learn it yourself. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I did send you a comment before. No, you did, you did, it's all good. Um, so some of the themes, um, man, we could go on about this forever, but I won't. Um, I was saying yesterday in our Beowulf panel that Religion, I find, often will reflect, it can be a bit of a zeitgeist. So the, the author, in, in the aspects of religion that they bring out in their book, is often reflecting uh, something about how religion is in society at that time, or perhaps trying to influence something about how that author believes religion should be in society at that time. So, for example, in Beowulf, um, this is a author writing, a poet writing from a Christian perspective, writing about a pagan people, pre-Christian peoples, um, but telling the story with the viewpoint that even though they didn't know the Christian God, he was overseeing it all. Because if you believe that that, that, that is the, the God, then that God has been God even when people didn't believe that that God was God. So Beowulf is uh, telling a story of pre-Christian times from a Christian slant and kind of taking ownership of the Anglo-Saxon world picture of the importance of the <coughs> hero uh, and, and turning that into a Christian perspective. You don't see it as overtly in Beowulf as you find it elsewhere in Anglo-Saxon literature and particularly art. But this idea that Christ is the warrior hero who mounts the cross in glory. He's not nailed to it in agony. He's choosing to climb up there and be victorious over death. So he becomes a figure who would be immediately um, recognizable and appealing to people in this Anglo-Saxon warrior heroic society. Once you get into the Renaissance period and things happen like the Black Death, um, suffering, pain, not that that wasn't going on in Anglo-Saxon times, but in Renaissance writings you get much more of this sense of why are we suffering on this earth? And so the Christ figure becomes the suffering king, the one who lays himself down, doesn't climb up in glory, lays himself down to suffer. 
And in Tolkien and Lewis, and again, it's very shorthanding this, um, they're exploring a religion at a time in the 20th century when, except for a sort of resurgence a little bit during the Second World War, they're seeing a, a, a period where people are becoming much more doubting about religion. The attendance in church through the 20th century is just dropping off, and they are therefore perhaps doing different things with their writing about religion to try and uh, remind people of the relevance that they believe that faith has at their time. So um, it's often, as I say, a zeitgeist that's an important reflection of the time. Some of these particular topics, just going through them and then we can see what others have to throw in there. Origins and creation, well, that of course makes me think of Norse mythology and therefore Tolkien, right? That leads us on to his idea of sub-creation, that if, as an artist, you want to build a world or create a religion, all you're ever doing is being a sub-creator because your imagination, your art, comes from the creator, God. Um, and so through the very act of writing, you're kind of exploring your origins. But Tolkien's great exploring origins and creation, although it doesn't seem like He's exploring our origins or the creation of our planet, but he's, he's finding his own way of expressing that. Um, good and evil makes me think, of course, of um, Arthurian literature, uh, the Grail Quest literature. You very much see that sense of um, looking for an object which could solve all and cure all, but in Charles Williams' writings, the grail becomes something in the, the, in the wrong hands, like in Indiana Jones, could be a source of evil. So it's, it's got to be in the right hands to be a relic for good. Um, I also think good and evil is very interesting in, in Martin, in Game of Thrones, um, because he blurs them so much. He's so great at setting up characters that were like, ah, oh, yes, this character is an evil character. And then we're like, but I really like him. You know? And I find myself going, but, but Jamie Lannister, I kind of love him. He's kind of great and he hasn't really done anything wrong. And then my friend says, well, you know, he did rape someone and he did push a little boy off a wall to his death. I'm like, yeah, but he's not all bad. And I think, interestingly, Martin does that with how he writes about religion as well. And Tara was saying that he's kind of exploring what, how religion can be corrupted, it can be good and evil. And the, the big question mark I have with Martin's depictions of religion is why the worshippers of Renoir seem to have so much power. Because most of the religions that we see, it's like, well, people believe this, but it doesn't actually protect them. It doesn't save them. It doesn't help them. They believe it. But where is their God when shit is going down, right? But the Lord of Light keeps getting involved. What's that about? Why this, this religion that seems evil seems to be the one that has the power maybe to overcome the White Walkers eventually? We don't know. So... Uh, death and afterlife, let me just throw out here a little tiny fantasy that doesn't talk about religion really at all, except Harry Potter, what is going on on the train platform? That wonderful <laughs> little moment of death and afterlife, this little glimpse that Harry goes to some kind of purgatory, landing halfway up the stairs place, where he meets Dumbledore and basically gets to choose. Do you want to take a train on? 
or do you want to go back? So there's this just fascinating little glimpse of maybe what something of the afterlife might be that's so unusual to me that rolling through that in there because that's not something she deals with otherwise. Um, free will versus fate. Beowulf is all about free will and fate, but they're not versus each other. According to uh, Beowulf, you have free will and fate at the same time. And Lewis wrote about this, and particularly um, in the Screwtape Letters. There's a wonderful one where Screwtape, Screwtape tells Wormwood that because God doesn't work in linear time, he knows what we are going to choose because it's all happening at the same time for God. It's not linear. Right, right. Um, so if they, they say, well, this happened because God knew that that was going to happen, and someone would say, well, that meant you didn't have a choice. No, God knew you were going to choose that. You had a choice, and when it came to that moment as we linearly lived through time, you had a choice, but God already knew you were going to make the choice you made. So you're both kind of fated in the way that we understand it because God sees the whole picture before it's happened, but you still have free will. He knows what we will choose, but we still get to choose. So um, Lewis sort of plays very well with this thing of free, free will and fate, and as I say, Beowulf all the time. It's when you're gonna die, you're gonna die. If it's your doom, if it's your fate, doesn't matter how great a warrior you are, if it's not your time to die, you will survive, and if it is your time to die, you're out. Um, and then the last one I wanted to just touch on in this list, and then I'll hand it over to others, is the redemption and sacrifice one. Um, different kinds of sacrifice, different kinds of depictions of that. Again, going back to Anglo-Saxon writing in the poem The Dream of the Rood, I mentioned that before, you have this sense that Yes, Christ is the sacrificial lamb, but he's more of the sacrificial warrior. So he is like Beowulf in his final encounter with the dragon, knowing that he's doomed. He senses even as he's going that this is the end, but he goes anyway, and he goes with glory and strength and power. Versus the sacrifice that we see of Aslan, in the Narnia stories, where yes, he has strength and power, but when the moment of the sacrifice, we see him absolutely, supposedly weak, shorn of his mane, he very much is this meek and suffering sacrifice. Now in both those cases, well, not Beowulf the hero, but the, the Christ representation, you have the rising in glory afterwards. But there's that different depiction of the kind, what kind of sacrifice do we need? Do we need the sacrifice that goes as the bold warrior into the battle, or do we need the sacrifice who allows himself to be led forward, tied and bound and meek? And I don't know what our current society, we need something, but I don't know what kind of sacrifice we need right now. <laughs> so let me ask the process of Tim, um, as authors, where, where, which are the, what are the themes that you find yourself either going to intentionally or find yourself wandering into? I don't go into any intentionally. Um, in fact, I never have any sort of uh, something to say when I write a story. Um, like, uh, this is my statement on this issue. I never do that. Um, as um, Tara was saying, if you do write fiction uh, simply caring about the story and the characters and reread it, 
if you have done enough of it, it will be evident a lot of what you think. Theodore Sturgeon once said that if you have convictions, simply write about interesting characters with interesting problems, and your beliefs will be as evident as a Volkswagen under a tarp. Um, so I never, I never set out with, uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, educate the reader, or improve the reader, or corrupt the reader, or, uh, as, because I certainly hate it as a reader when writers attempt that kind of thing. Um, inevitably, my ideas of what is interesting stories and interesting supernatural situations is probably derived from my Catholic beliefs, um, though they are also probably derived from my uh, fondness for Fritz Leiber, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, A. Merritt, um, and pretend I went through the whole list. Um, some of it works backwards. I think it's easier to um, comprehend or in some way get your mind around uh, certain religious beliefs if you do have a background in science fiction and fantasy. Um, as Kirsten was saying, uh, it's naive though natural to say how can I be blamed for my actions uh, if God knows what I'm going to do next Tuesday? Obviously, I have no choice about what I'm going to do next Tuesday. I mean, he could be writing it down right now for all we know and putting it in an envelope. He'll show it to me then. <laughs> but the mistake is to imagine that God foresees or remembers anything. Or that the fact of him being in 2018 means he can't just as fully be in 2020 or 1900 just as being in Los Angeles, we don't believe precludes him from being in Chicago. Um, and if you're a science fiction fantasy fan, you're a little bit more open to the idea of a perspective that is not locked into our um, sequential uh, conveyor belt. Um, and I do think that uh, in fiction, certainly, and realistically in real life as well, we want to have characters we can admire for what they choose to do. Uh, I mean, they could have stayed home, but instead they did the admirable thing. And we want to be able to despise characters who could have uh, behaved themselves, but instead chose to do this despicable thing. Um, free will, in other words. Uh, what you see in the Greek mythology really is determinism, fate. I mean, once the Delphic Oracle says what's what, you may as well just go along with it. Uh, I mean, poor old Oedipus, you know. Um, and I do think, and as a matter of fact, Bertrand Russell would agree with me. He wrote a book called Science and Religion. And he said that if you imagine that your physical actions, what you do or choose not to do, has any causal connection with anything happening in your mind, you're deluded. Uh, whether you choose to have a beer or a Coke, pick up the phone or let it keep ringing, is as inevitable as the course of a pebble in an avalanche. And that the idea that we have free will and that therefore we can be praised for doing the right thing or blamed for doing the wrong thing is as crazy as blaming a brick wall 
for falling on you. You wouldn't, you know, arrest it and put it on trial and punish it. Um, ha, I've wandered from your question. But, <laughs> but I, do th I do think free will itself is um, very tightly bound in with what it is that we like in fantasy fiction. I, I want to give a, an open forum here, so let me kind of get through the last couple of areas quickly, and then maybe we can open up to the audience. Um, Sorry. One of the things is just, who does it? Who does it well? If you, if you had to kind of recommend, given your reading, um, you know, here, here's a book that I think actually integrates religion um, effectively into it, for your tastes. I mean, Tara, could you, I don't know if you have a on that, or, um, I mean, to be honest, I, I really don't because it depends on what somebody's looking for. Are you looking for the, like, allegorical, you know, like C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia? Are you looking for the almost, like, near lack of it, you know, Tolkien with his... The, I mean, there's just pretty much no... You know, mention or religion is definitely not a big part of their their world, um, or are you looking for something like Martin, where you want to see, you know, this this uh, author's reflections of, yeah, of 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 so many different religions. So I, I really think, for me, like I mean, I love Song of Ice and Fire, but um, you know, so so I would probably say that. But are there it, others that you, that you also like? Um, for religion wise, honestly, I I don't really look for that in my stories. So if it's if it's there and it's done well, uh, you know, then it, it it's kind of that's great. But it's definitely not something yeah. that I go searching for. Yeah. I have a book that I would love to mention that just kind of as one to recommend. This is actually a children's book or a young adult book by an author called Margaret Mahi. And the book is called Changeover. And um, it's not at all what you would expect that we're talking about here for religion, but it reflects very well beliefs of pagan and Wiccan religions. So it's a, just a fantastic story. And to me, it's a very good exploration of what uh, in some pagan pathways is believed. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Margaret Mahi's Changeover is a great book. Um, I think it's kind of interesting in that you were asking for some books to recommend, but I think another way to look at this is like those of us who are deep into different fandoms uh, will reread works. Certainly, I've read Tolkien, etc. But I also want to mention the idea of, for example, if, you, if you've read Harry Potter, who has not read Harry Potter, okay, and even The Hunger Games, this is, these are books about sacrifice, right? And so if you go back to read it, just read past the story, and you start looking for thematic content and see how well is that handled. So the question of sacrifice, is somebody volunteering to actually do, do, do the hard thing? And people who choose not to do the hard thing, you start to explore. Uh, somebody in the last panel asked me, how do you get involved in literary criticism? This is how you do it. You start rereading what you already mm -hmm. know, and then you look at it with a different eye. Now. Um, the idea, the question of grace is a big one, that you're given efficacious grace. You know, Carl Rahner, Carl Rahner is a Jesuit scholar who actually did a treatise on this. He is the man to go through in the 20th century for concepts on grace. And that permeate, is permeated through the Lord of the Rings concept, that each character is given just what he needs to, he or she needs to accomplish uh, in order to bring that, that choice, that moment to fruition. Uh, I think that the, the stories that deal with sacrifice and with people rising above their own limitations to fulfill something, that's inspirational. And I was talking about when I said before about art being the song of the soul. This is why these things resonate with us, because 
it is touching something that is inherently human, but also rises for that numinous quality to, ro to rise above everyday experience and see that we are part of the fabric of the universe. So this is how you have to look at that, I think, so. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna transition and finally get back to your question. But the one thing that I, I the book I would toss on here, and I put it in a little graphic, uh, was Lewis, but his um, Till We Have Faces. It was one of his last books that he wrote. I think it's actually, for me personally, one of his best crafted books. Lewis, from his immediate circle, got lots of criticism about ripping them off too quickly. <laughs> but I think he really worked this one. And, it's, and, it, and, it, and it deals with, um, with myth, the psyche myth. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really well done. And the, if you don't like Lewis because he has too much religion, read this book. If you do like Lewis because he has a lot of religion, read this book. So, so it's good. good. Um, so, just, so the question, this will be our bridge to the general open floor. Uh, so you were asking, how do you do it? I, there's a particular example that you had in mind. And so what are, what are the approaches, tropes to avoid, things that work well? So things like the quest, and myth, and sub-religions, and magic, and Christ figures, and morally ambiguous characters, and those kinds of things. So um, I'll just open it to the panel. Constance, if you want to open it, but did that get your question kind of? How much dogma do you need? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, how much dogma? Yeah. Um, you don't. I mean, I think that Tolkien proved that. And what's uh, this one, I'm actually going to a different segue. If you're looking at um, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. Now, St. Joan was a living, breathing human being, okay? But when you see the play about her that Shaw did, they have this whole discussion about uh, illusion versus reality. It's, re it's really interesting when you deal with uh, Joan as a sacrificial figure. So this is a fictional representation of Joan of Arc, but she is ultimately a wonderful example of sacrifice, and he's not beating you over the head with belief. She's the one who believes everybody that's around her, even the, the, the science of the church. There's simply like people, that, there's the government, there's the bishops, etc. and they, it's been as business as usual. They're not very religious, and she's the only person who carries that religiosity forward, I think. So it's an interesting way to explore if you look at drama, too, and I think that St. Joan is an excellent character and historical person to explore that further. Good. Why don't, why don't we open the floor? Okay. And I see a hand over there, and if anybody on the staff, we, we can even turn up the lights now, because we're going to spend a bit of the Q&A. Yeah, true. In the, uh, I just want to just touch yeah. back on the how much, because I feel like we haven't really addressed your question there. And, and whilst I am uh, not a published writer, I certainly have written things, but, uh, but also from reading, my feeling is you need as much in there as is necessary for your audience to understand your character's motivations. So if you're creating a religion, a religion like all different, Martin's different ones, etc., um, you do not want to bog your reader down with facts about, you know, on the second Tuesday of every month they are required to, unless that's relevant to the plot. So I think you have to have a, sort of a pretty good outline in your own mind, but it's, it's the relevance of that religion that you're creating is how does it drive your characters, how does it motivate them, and if there's a piece of dogma of your created faith that is going to be significant to their motivators, 
you got to be sure your readers know what that is. Oh, yeah, Dune is a good example of that. Dune, yeah. yeah we, by the way, High Fantasy yesterday officially declared a hostile takeover of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we've also taken it's over. It's mine the, now. So <laughs> we've got Harry Potter. We're, we're taking over Dune. Uh -huh. So sooner or later, and in your comments, we would really appreciate it if you please ask for a bigger room. That way we can Seriously. incorporate all of these fandoms. <laughs> <laughs> all your bases come to the website. And partly, partly an answer to your question. Uh, certainly, the uh, details and dogmas and doctrines and everything, rituals, traditions of your religion. Being a part of this uh, created background, you're not setting this in New York today, um, just as you're going to need to know more about the economy, uh, the weather, uh, agriculture, um, then you will bother to show the reader. You need to know much more about the background than the reader will ever know so that the bits you show us will be evidently consistent. I would say, yeah, you better know a lot about the damn religion. Um, you won't show us nearly uh, a substantial fraction of how much you know about it, but you better, you better know about it. Just as you had better know the entire life of your character up to the point where we begin to see him. Um, and just as you need to make your economy consistent with your technology and your agriculture, you don't want to have... Um, tomatoes in winter uh, in, the, in the wrong climate, um, you'd better work to make your fictional religion something that intelligent people will find plausible. Intelligent people will find plausible in its explanation of conscience, death, etc. Um, and it's interesting when you see religions, fictional religions where the author did appear to give it more construction than perhaps was demanded. Uh, I think mainly, not a fantasy, but uh, Philip K. Dick's A Maze of Death. Has anybody read A Maze of Death, Philip K. Dick? Come on. <laughs> Get busy. Um, in any case, for this science fiction novel, he did invent an entirely fictitious uh, religion which undertook to explain everything. So let's go over here. We've got a question. Uh, sort of going off of that, and maybe this is just an agnostic's dilemma, but the difference when you write a fictional world and create religions in it, you as the author and then we as the reader have the opportunity to see maybe the objective truth of it that you can't, I mean, someone argued you could, but I, from my perspective, would say you cannot see in mm -hmm. Real religions, for example, in uh, Song of Ice and Fire, we see examples of Roller's magic, we see examples of the weirwoods and the old gods, we see uh, maybe even a little bit of an example of the drowned gods' uh, validity, whereas I, I can't think of any uh, instances that says, like, yes, the faith of the seven totally uh, exists as supernatural beings, which to me suggests that they don't. So, how does that work in, I guess, there's you can create religions as objective truth in a fiction the way they maybe aren't in reality even, even if people feel they are 
you can't kind of project that. You you can think someone's wrong. You can maybe say they're wrong, but you can't like forcibly make them believe they're wrong. Whereas it, fictional characters, we can, as readers or a person as a writer, can know that the religion is right or wrong. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, you are, but I would say, or can we? Because um, we only know what Martin is choosing to tell us, right? So if we take the whole self-creation thing a little further. So um, the characters peopling Martin's books don't necessarily know that what they're experiencing is that something just happened. And we're told, we see, because we have the omniscient view, that we're that this is because this happened, or that it's because Melisandre did this, or but we don't know that for sure. And you could argue that in our day-to-day -day life, stuff happens all the time that might be happening because of this. And if we have a certain belief, or we experience something in a certain way, then we say, oh, now uh, that's a revelation to me. So I, I think actually we're told something when we're reading literature sometimes, which is didactic and saying it happened for this. But whether we really accept that or believe that as truth is the same experience that we have in the real world. It's like, what has been revealed to us? Has the writer revealed it to us? And therefore we accept it as truth? But if it's revealed to us through our emotions in the real world, why don't we accept that as truth too? And that was one of the things that Lewis sort of grappled with and then came to terms with in his own belief system was this idea, and again it's mentioned in Screwtape Letters, that we tend to be ready to accept bad things and the way they make us feel is absolutely real and good things and the way they make us feel is just being transitory and you know so I, you know I, I have such joy today but that's just a feeling anything real but I'm terrified of whatever it is going on that plane on Thursday and that's real that's real fear well they're all fear they're all real and just feelings in the same way so I, I think things are revealed or not revealed in this world as they are in literature we just buy into them in different ways, because we're ready to believe the author. Let's see if we can get one more question over here at least, maybe a couple more. Uh, hi there, um, I could talk about this stuff all day, honestly, but um, the one question that I had was, and this may just be based on like the kinds of books that I read, but I encounter polytheistic kind of fictional religions more so than monotheistic ones. Um, why do you think that is, and do you think that affects the kinds of themes that come up in those books? Interesting. So polytheism, you can even see some of that picking out. We'll talk about that in the hour, but um, another panel coming up. Yeah. Polytheism, monotheism. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think that uh, the one thing about monotheism is that it's, it's I think it, just is always going to tend to be almost too real, which is why it's easier for writers to create polytheistic religions. That yeah, yeah. In fantasy, maybe easy isn't even the right word, but it's better for them to do so because by trying to write a monotheistic one, it might just be too close to what you know, a huge portion of the world practices in real life, and then it takes you out of their fantasy world. Of course, that's very good much point. from a Western sort of Christian perspective, because if we were living in India, 
we would be much more ready, perhaps, to believe a polytheistic worldview. We're going to have one more question. We're, we're distributing those questions. So, just for the sake of time, um, there's a complicated dynamic between authors who choose to express and amplify ethical or religious themes through the POV of fantastic worlds and characters like witches who have been historically condemned through the Western Christian lens and still are today. Speaking as someone who was raised in a Roman Catholic school but discovered her relationship to the world through fantasy literature, I would love to hear your personal and professional points of view of how you navigate something like that. Well, that's a great question. Okay, that is an excellent question. Um, my background's probably very similar to yours, you know, and as I said before, I am still a practicing Roman Catholic, but I have also the eclecticism, you know, I'm open to different things. I think that being aware of different beliefs, and I, I, you mentioned witches and whatnot, or the pagan situation, it opens up a whole realm of possibilities of how to interpret the world, you know, and it filters it into your art. And it doesn't mean that you've abandoned any kind of faith that you were raised with, it simply means that you're able to see manifestations in different ways, you know, and so it can come into your art, and some people will also choose to practice if they want to do that, but they're really rather interesting, and then I find that studying various things will those questions in my literature and the Celtic stuff that I'm interested in, and the Arthurian stuff that I'm interested in, obviously, the Tolkien, etc. But yeah, it really, I mean, one, one of the 9,000 projects that I'm still working to finish is I'm doing a play on St. Joan, you know, so it's like this, 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 but that, that's fascinating to me, you know, a chosen figure for sacrifice and whatnot that I also see. Um, and I have a Celtic novel as well, so, you know, yeah. So, it, it just influences different ways, and it doesn't make you abandon things of your childhood. You can still do it in a different way. Yeah. Any other thoughts, or, or final thoughts from our panelists? Final thoughts? No final thoughts. Well, <laughs> please look for Tim's next book, The Tomato Woman. <laughs> <laughs>